Chapter 5 Europe in the Middle Ages by Ierna Ilford Plunkett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Invasions of the Barbarians. Instead of endeavoring to maintain a united empire, Constantine, in his will, divided up his dominions between three sons and two nephews. Before thirty years were over, however, a series of murders and civil wars had exterminated his family. And two brothers, Valentian and Valens, men of humble birth but capable soldiers, were elected as joint emperors. Valens ruled at Constantinople, his brother at Milan. And it was during this reign that the empire received one of the worst blows that had ever befallen her. We have already mentioned the Goths, a race of barbarians half-civilized by Roman influence and converted to Christianity by followers of Arius. One of their tribes, the Visigoths, had settled in large numbers in the country to the north of the Danube. On the whole, their relations with the empire were friendly, and it was hardly their fault that the peace was finally broken, but rather of a strange Tartar race called the Huns, that, massing in the plains of Asia, had suddenly swept over Europe. Here is a description given of the Huns by a Gothic writer. Quote, Men with faces that can scarcely be called faces, rather shapeless black collops of flesh with tiny points instead of eyes, little in stature but lithe and active, skillful in riding, broad-shouldered, hiding under a barely human form the ferocity of a wild beast. Unquote. Tradition says that these monsters, mounted on their shaggy ponies, rode women and children underfoot and feasted on human flesh. Whether this be true or no, their name became a terror to the civilized world, and after a few encounters with them, the Visigoths crowded on the edge of the Danube and implored the emperor to allow them to shelter behind the line of Roman forts. Valens, to whom the petition was made, hesitated. There was obvious danger to his dominions in the sudden influx of a whole tribe. But on the other hand, fear might madden the Visigoths into trying to cross, even if he refused, and if so, could he withstand them? All the multitude that escaped from the murderous savagery of the Huns, says a writer of the day, no less than 200,000 fighting men beside the women and old men and children were there on the river banks, stretching out their hands with loud lamentations and promising that they would ever faithfully adhere to the imperial alliance if only the boon was granted to them. Reluctantly, Valens yielded, and soon the province of Dacia was crowded with refugees. But here the real trouble began. Food must be found for this multitude, and it was evident that the local crops would not suffice. In vain the emperor commanded that corn should be imported. The greed of officials who were responsible for carrying out this order led them to hold up large consignments and sell what little they allowed to pass at wholly extortionate rates. Their unwelcome guests, half-starved and fleeced of the small savings they had been able to bring with them, complained, plotted, and at last broke into open rebellion. This treatment of the Visigoths in Dacia is one of the worst pages in the history of the Roman Empire, but it brought its own speedy punishment. The suspicion and hatred engendered by misery spread like a flame, 
and the barbarian forces were joined by deserters of their own race from the imperial legions and by runaway slaves until they had grown into a formidable army valens forced to take steps to preserve his throne met them on the battlefield of adrianople but only to suffer crushing defeat he himself was slain and some forty thousand of those who had served under his banner never before had the imperial eagles met with such a reverse at barbarian hands and the visigoths after the first moment of triumph were almost alarmed at the extent of their own success before the frowning walls of constantinople their courage faltered and without attempting a siege they retreated northward into thrace gladly they came to terms with theodosius valens successor who not content with regranting them the lands to the south of the danube that they so much desired increased his army by taking whole regiments of their best warriors into his pay lover of peace and of the goths is the character with which theodosius has passed down to posterity and during his reign the visigoths and other northern tribes received continual marks of his favor one of the gothic kings the old chief athanaric went to visit him at constantinople and was overwhelmed by the magnificent and luxury he saw around him now do i at last behold he exclaimed what i have often heard but deemed incredible doubtless the emperor is a god on earth and he who raises a hand against him is guilty of his own blood the alliance between goth and greek served its purpose at the moment for by the aid of the new troops theodosius was able to defeat the rival emperor of rome and to conquer italy when he died he left constantinople in the east to his eldest son arcadius a youth of eighteen and rome and the west to the younger honorius who was only eleven true to his belief in barbarian ability theodosius selected a vandal chief stilicho to whom he had given his niece in marriage that he might act as the boy's adviser and command the imperial forces under a wise regent a nation may wait in patience for their child ruler to mature unfortunately canorius as he grew up belied any promise of manliness he had ever shown languidly refusing to continue his boyish sports of riding or archery and taking no interest save in some cocks and hens that it was his daily pleasure to feed himself he had no affection or reverence for rome and finally settled in ravenna on the adriatic as the safest fortress in his dominions from here he consented to sign the orders that dispatched the legions to protect his frontiers or issued haughty manifestos to his enemies so long as stilicho lived such feebleness passed comparatively unnoticed for the vandal a man of giant build and strength possessed to the full the tireless energy and daring that the dangers of the time demanded theodosius had made the visigoths his friends but on his death they began to chafe at the restrictions laid on them by the imperial alliance arcadius was nearly as poor a creature as his younger brother so inactive that he seldom spoke and always looked as though he were about to fall asleep the barbarians bore him no hatred but on the other hand he could scarcely inspire their affection or fear and so they chose a king of their own alaric one of the most famous generals and from this moment they began to think of fresh conquests and pillage 
the suggestion of sacking constantinople was put on one side those massive walls against their background of sea would make it a difficult task besides the visigoths argued were there not other towns equally rich and more vulnerable with an exultant shout that answered this question they set out on their march first toward illyricum on the eastern coast of the adriatic and then to the fertile plains of italy alaric and stilicho were well matched as generals and for years through arduous campaigns of battles and sieges the vandal kept the goth at bay when at last death forced him to resign the challenge it was no enemy's sword but the weapon of treachery that robbed rome of her best defender honorius lacking in gratitude as in other virtues had been ill-pleased at the success of his armies for wily courtiers hoping to plant their fortunes amid another's ruin told him that stilicho intended to secure the imperial throne for himself and that in order to do so he would think little of murdering his royal master suspicion made the timid emperor writhe with terror through sleepless nights it seemed to him that he would never know peace of mind again until he had rid himself of this formidable commander-in-chief and so by his orders stilicho was put to death and italy lay at the mercy of alaric and his followers sweeping across the alps the visigoths paused at last before the gates of rome we are many in number and prepared to fight boldly began the ambassadors sent out from the city thick grass is easier to mow than thin replied alaric dropping their lofty tone the ambassadors demanded the price of peace and on the answer your gold your silver your treasures all that you have they exclaimed in horror what then do you leave us your souls was the mocking rejoinder after much argument the visigoths consented to be bought off and retreated northwards but it was only to return in the summer of the year four ten when rome after a feeble resistance opened her gates her enemies poured in triumph through the streets but alaric was no hun loving slaughter for its own sake and ordered his troops to respect human life and to spare the churches and the gold and silver vessels that rested on their altars he spent only a few days in sacking the city and then marched southward intending to invade africa while his army was embarking however he fell ill and died and so great was his loss that all thought of the campaign was surrendered alaric was mourned by his people as a national hero and unable to bear the thought that his enemies might one day desecrate his tomb they dammed up a river in the neighborhood and dug a grave for their general deep in its bed when they had laid his body there they released the stream into its old course and so left their hero safe from insult beneath the waters the sack of rome that moved the civilized world profoundly made little impression on the young emperor he had named one of his favorite hens after the capital and when a messenger haggard with the news he had brought fell on his knees gasping sire rome has perished honorius only frowned and replied impossible i've fed her myself this morning st jerome in his hermit cell at bethlehem was stupefied at the fate of the eternal city the world crumbles he said there is no created work that rust or age does not consume but rome who could have believed that raised by her victories above the universe 
she would one day fall why had rome fallen this was the question on everybody's lips we know today that the process of her corruption had been working for centuries but men and women rarely see what is going on around them and some began to murmur that the old gods of olympus were angry because their religion had been forsaken it was affirmed that christ would save the world but what had he done to save rome christianity was not long in finding a champion to defend her cause an african monk augustine to medieval minds the greatest of all the fathers of the church augustine was the son of a pagan father and a christian mother and grew up a wild and undisciplined boy after some years at the university of carthage spent in casual study and habitual dissipation he determined to go to rome and from there he passed to milan where he went out of curiosity to listen to the preaching of st ambrose it was obvious that he would either hate or be strongly influenced by this fiery old man and in truth augustine who secretly repented of the way he had wasted his life was in a ripe mood to receive the message that he had refused to hear from the lips of monica his mother soon he was converted and baptized and later he was made bishop of hippo a place not far from carthage it is difficult to give a picture of augustine in a few words like saint ambrose and others of the early fathers he was quite intolerant of heresy and believed that ordinary human love and the simplest pleasures of the world were snares set by the devil to catch the unwary but against these unbalanced views largely the product of the age in which he lived must be set his burning enthusiasm for god and the services that he rendered to christianity a modern writer says of him quote, as the supreme man of his time he summed up the past as it still lived remolded it added to it from himself and gave it a new unity and form wherein it was to live on the great heart the great mind the mind led by the heart's inspiration the heart guided by the mind this is augustine superior in intellect to other men of his day his whole being filled with the love of god and fired by the desire to make the world share his worship he preached worked and wrote only to this end in his confessions he describes his youth and repentance but his most famous work is civitas day here was the answer to those who declared that rome had fallen because she neglected her pagan deities rome he maintained was not and never could be eternal for the one eternal kingdom was the civitas day the city of god toward whose reign of triumph the human race had been tending since earliest times before her glory the kingdoms of this world and all culture and civilization of which men boasted must fade away thus god had destined and saint augustine exerted all his eloquence and powers of reasoning to prove from history the magnitude and sureness of the divine purpose the author of the civitas day was to have his faith severely tested for he died amid scenes of desolation and horror that held out no hope of happiness for man on earth rome stood at the mercy of barbarians and christian africa was also fast falling under their yoke these new invaders the vandals were also a german tribe who as soon as stilicho withdrew legions from the rhine to defend italy from the visigoths broke over the weakened frontier into gaul and from there crossed the pyrenees and marched southwards 
Spain had been one of the richest of Rome's provinces, and besides her minerals and corn had provided the empire with not a few rulers as well as famous authors and poets. In her commercial prosperity she had grown, like her neighbors, corrupt and unwarlike, so the Vandals met with little resistance and plundered and pillaged at their will. Instead of settling down amid their conquests, they were driven by the promise of further loot and the pressure of other barbarian tribes following hard on their heels to cross the narrow Strait of Gibraltar and to pursue their way due east along the African coast. In Spain they have left the memory of their presence in the name of one of her fairest provinces, Andalusia. The chief of the Vandals at this time was Genseric, who not only conquered all the coastline of North Africa, but also built a fleet that became the terror of the Mediterranean. Like the Goths, the Vandals were Christians, but they held the views of Arius, and there could be little hope that they would tolerate the Orthodox Catholics. Though hardly as inhuman and ruthless as their opponents would have had the world believe, they pillaged and laid waste as they passed, and posterity has since applied the word vandal to the man who willfully destroys. The name Hun is even more sinister in repute. In the first half of the 5th century, the Huns in their triumphant march across Europe were led by their king Attila, the scourge of God, whose boast it was that never grass grew again where his horse's hooves had once trod. So short and squat as to be almost deformed, flat-nosed with a swarthy skin and deep-set eyes that he would roll hideously when angered, the king loved to inspire terror, not only amongst his enemies but in the chieftains under his command. Pity, gentleness, civilization, such words were either unknown or abhorrent to him, and in the towns whose walls were stormed by his troops, old men, women, priests, and children fell alike, victims to his sword. It was his ambition that the name of Attila should become a terror to the whole earth, but the extent to which he succeeded in realizing this aim brought a serious check to his arms, for when he reached the boundaries of Gaul, he found that fear had gathered into a single hostile force of formidable size races that had warred for centuries amongst themselves. Here were not only provincials, descendants of the Romanized inhabitants of Gaul, but Goths, Franks, Burgundians, and other tribes who, like the Vandals, had forced the passage of the Rhine as soon as the imperial garrisons were weakened or withdrawn. They had little in common save hatred of the Hun, a passion so strong that in a desperate battle on the plain of Chalons, they hurled back the Tartar hordes forever from the lands of Western Europe. Shaken by his defeat, but sullen and vindictive, Attila turned his thoughts to Italy, and he and his warriors swept across the passes of the Alps and descended on the fertile country lying to the northwest of the Adriatic. The Italians made but a feeble resistance, and the palaces, baths, and amphitheaters of once wealthy towns vanished in smoking ruins. One important work of construction Attila unconsciously assisted, for the inhabitants of Achillea, seeking refuge from their cruel foe, fled to the coast, and there, amid the desolate lagoons, they and their descendants built for themselves in the course of centuries a new city, Venice, the future queen of the Adriatic. Aquileia has been a city of repute, 
but it can be safely guessed that she would never have attained the world-wide glory that venice safe behind her barrier of marshes and with every incentive to naval enterprise was to establish in the middle ages from the adriatic provinces attila passed to rome but refrained from sacking the city it is said that he was uneasy because the armies of the gaul that had defeated him at chalons still hung on his rear threatening to cut off his retreat across the alps at any rate he consented to make terms negotiated by the pope on behalf of the citizens of rome contemporary accounts declare that the hun was awed by the sight of leo i in his priestly robes and by the fearlessness of his bearing and certainly for his mediation he well deserved the title of great that the people in their gratitude bestowed on him attila when he left rome turned northwards but died quite shortly after some drunken orgy the kingdom of massacre and fire that he had built on the terror of his name fell rapidly to pieces and only the remembrance of that terror remained while the huns merged themselves in the armies of other tribes or fought together in petty rivalry rome had been taken by alaric the visigoth and spared by attila but her trials were not yet at an end genseric the vandal king who had established himself at carthage was only awaiting his opportunity to plunder a city that was still a world-famous treasure house his fleet that had cut off italy entirely from the cornfields of egypt blockaded the mouth of the tiber and the romans weakened by famine and the warfare of the past few years quickly sued for peace once more pope leo went as mediator to the camp of his enemies but the arian vandal unlike the pagan hun was adamant he was willing to forego a general massacre but nothing further and for a fortnight the city was ruthlessly pillaged then genseric sailed away carrying with him thousands of prisoners besides all the treasures of money and art on which he could lay hands nearly four hundred years before the emperor titus when he sacked jerusalem brought to rome the golden altar and candlesticks of the jewish temple and now rome in her turn was despoiled of these trophies of her former victories it was little wonder if the western emperors who had systematically failed to save their capital became discredited at last among their own troops and rome that had begun life according to a tradition under a romulus was to end her empire under another a handsome boy nicknamed in derision of his helplessness augustulus or little augustus the pretext of his deposition was his refusal to grant italian lands to the german troops who formed the main part of the imperial army on which their captain odoacer compelled him to abdicate so low had the imperial dignity sunk in public estimation that odoacer instead of claiming the once coveted honor sent the diadem and purple robe to the emperor at constantinople we disclaim the necessity or even the wish wrote augustulus of continuing any longer the imperial succession in italy the majesty of a sole monarch is sufficient to pervade and protect at the same time both east and west the writer so fortunate in his insignificance that no one wished to assassinate him <laughs> spent the rest of his days in a castle by the mediterranean supported by a revenue from the state while odoacer with the title of patrician 
ruled the land with statesmanlike moderation for fourteen years. Two more waves of invasion were yet to break across the Alps and hinder all attempts at restoration and unity. The first was that of the Ostrogoths, or Eastern Goths, a tribe of the same race as the Visigoths that, meeting the first onslaught of the Huns in their advance from Asia, had only just on the death of Attila freed themselves from this terrible yoke. They sought now an independent kingdom, and under the leadership of their prince, Theodoric, chafed on the boundaries of the Eastern Empire, with which they had formed an alliance. Theodoric had been educated in Constantinople, and, though brave and warlike, did not share the reckless love of battle that animated his followers. He realized, however, that he must lead the Ostrogoths to a new land of plenty, or incur their hatred and suspicion. So he appealed to the Emperor Zeno for leave to go to Italy as his general, and depose Odoacer. Direct me with the soldiers of my nation, he wrote, to march against the tyrant. If I fall, you will be relieved from an expensive and troublesome friend. If, with divine permission, I succeed, I shall govern in your name and to your glory. Zeno had not been sufficiently powerful to prevent Odoacer from taking the title of patrician, but he had never liked the barbarian upstart who had dared to depose an emperor. He had also begun to dread the presence of the restless Ostrogoths so close to Constantinople, and warmly appreciated Theodoric's arguments in favor of their exodus. If the two barbarian kings destroyed one another, it would be all the better for the empire. And so, with the imperial blessing, Theodoric started on his great adventure. He took with him not only his warriors, but the women and children of his tribe and all their possessions and after several battles succeeded in defeating and slaying his opponent. Rome, that looked upon him as the emperor's representative, joyfully opened her gates, but Theodoric preferred to make Ravenna his capital, and here he settled and planted an orchard with his own hands. It was his hope that he might win the trust and affection of his new subjects, and though he ruled exactly as he liked, he remained outwardly submissive to the emperor, writing him humble letters and marking the coinage with the imperial stamp. He frequently consulted the Senate at Rome that, though it had long ago lost any real power, had never ceased to take a nominal share in the government. And when he gave a third of the Italian lands to his own countrymen, he allowed Roman officials to make the division. Theodoric also maintained the laws and customs of Italy and forced the Ostrogoths to respect them too but his army remained a national bodyguard, and in spite of his efforts at conciliation, the two peoples did not mingle. Between them stood the barrier of religious bitterness, for the Ostrogoths were Arians, and though their ruler was very tolerant in his attitude, the Catholics were always suspicious of his intentions. On one occasion there had been a riot against the Jews, and several synagogues had been burned. Theodoric ordered a collection of money to be made amongst the Orthodox Catholics who were responsible, that the buildings might be restored. This command was disobeyed, and when the ringleaders of the strike were whipped through the streets, popular anger against the Gothic king grew to white heat. He himself changed in character as he became older and showed himself morose and tyrannical. Toward the end of his reign, he put to death Boethius, a Roman senator, who had been one of his favorite advisers, 
but who had dared to defend openly a man whom he himself had condemned boethius was not only a fearless champion of his friends he was a great scholar who had kept alight the torch of classical learning amid the darkness and horror of invasion besides translating some of the works of aristotle he wrote treatises on logic arithmetic geometry and astronomy and made an able defense of the nicene creed against arian attacks the last and most famous of his works that for ten centuries men have remembered in love was his consolations of philosophy written when death in a most horrible form was already drawing close tortured by a cord drawn closely around his forehead and then beaten with clubs the philosopher escaped from a life where fortune had dealt with him cruelly his master survived him by two years repenting on his deathbed in an agony of remorse for the brutal sentence he had meted out it is scarcely fair to judge theodoric by the tyranny of his last days it is better to recall the glory of his prime and how in the western part of the empire there was no people who refused him homage allied by family ties with the burgundians the visigoths the vandals and the franks he was undoubtedly the greatest of all the barbarians of his age had his successors shown a little of his statesmanlike qualities ostrogoth and italian in spite of their religious differences might have united to form a single nation but unfortunately before twenty years had passed the kingdom he had founded was destined to disappear theodoric was succeeded by his grandson a boy who lived only a few years and then by a worthless nephew without either royal or statesmanlike qualities in contrast to this weak dynasty there ruled at constantinople an emperor who possessed in the highest degree the ability and steadfastness of purpose that the times required justinian was only a peasant by birth but he had been well educated and took a keen interest not only in questions of law and finance that concerned the government but in theology music and architecture in his manner to his subjects he was friendly though dignified but there was something unsympathetic in his nature that prevented him from becoming popular his courtiers regarded his industry with awe but some professed to believe that he could not spend so many midnight hours at work unless he were an evil spirit not requiring sleep one writer says that no one ever remembered him young yet this serious prince married for love a beautiful actress theodora and dared in the face of general indignation to make her his empress an historian of the time says of theodora it were impossible for mere man to describe her comeliness in words or imitate it in art yet she was no doll but took a very definite share in the government extorting admiration by her dignity even from those who had pretended to despise her justinian's chief passion was for building and he spent a great part of his revenue in erecting bridges, baths, forts, and palaces. Most famous of all the architecture of his time was St. Sophia, the Church of the Holy Wisdom, that, after Constantinople passed into the hands of the Turks, became a mosque. It is not, however, for St. Sophia that Justinian is chiefly remembered, 
but for the corpus juris civilis literally the body of civil law that he published in order that his subjects might know what the roman law really was the corpus juris civilis consisted of three parts the code a collection of decrees made by various emperors next the digest the decisions of eminent lawyers and thirdly the institutes an explanation of the principles of roman law after thirteen centuries says a modern writer it stands unsurpassed as a treasury of legal knowledge all through the middle ages men were to look to it for inspiration thus it was on the corpus juris civilis that ecclesiastical lawyers based the canon law that gave the pope an emperor's power over the church justinian worked for the progress of the world when he codified roman law it was unfortunate that military ambition led him to exhaust his treasury and overtax his subjects in order that he might establish his rule over the whole of europe like theodosius and constantine Besides carrying on an almost continuous war with the king of Persia, he sent an army and a fleet under an able general, Belisarius, to fight against the Vandals in North Africa. And so successful was this campaign that Justinian became master of the whole coastline, and even of a part of southern Spain. This gave him command of the Mediterranean, and he at once determined to overthrow the feeble descendants of Theodoric, and to restore the imperial dominion over Italy indeed, not, as it had been from the time of Odoacer, merely in name. The task was not easy, for the Italians, if we have noticed, did not love the Greeks, while the Goths fought bravely for independence. At length, in the year 555, after nineteen campaigns, Narsus, an Armenian who was at the head of Justinian's forces, succeeded in crushing the barbarians and established his rule at ravenna from which city under the title of exarch he controlled the whole peninsula narsus triumph had been in a great measure due to a german tribe the lombards whose hosts he enrolled under the imperial banner these lombards longobardi or longbeards as the name originally stood had migrated from the banks of the elba to the basin of the danube and there, looking about them for a warlike outlet for their energies, were quite as willing to invade Italy at Justinian's command as to go on any other campaign that promised to be profitable. Narsus, as soon as he was assured of success, paid them liberally for their services and sent them back to their own people. But the Lombards had learned to love the sunny climate and the vines growing out of doors, and were soon discontented with their bleaker homeland. They waited, therefore, until Narcissus, whom they knew and feared, was dead, and then, under the leadership of Alboin, their king, crossed over the Alps and invaded North Italy. They did not come in such tremendous strength as the Ostrogoths in the past, nor were the imperial troops powerless to stand against them. Indeed, the two forces were so balanced that, while the Lombards succeeded in establishing themselves in the province of Lombardy, to which they gave their name, with Pavia as its capital, the representatives of the emperor still held the coastline on both sides, also Ravenna, Naples, Rome, and other principal towns. This Lombard inroad, the last of the great barbarian invasions of Italy, was by far the most important in its effects. For one thing, two hundred years were to pass before the power of the new settlers was seriously shaken, and therefore, 
even the fact that they were pagans and imposed their own laws ruthlessly on the italians could not keep the races from gradually intermingling in time the higher civilization conquered and the fair-haired teutons learned to worship the christian god forgot their own tongue and adopted the customs and habits they saw around them the italians on their part in the course of their struggles with the lombards became trained in the art of war they had almost forgotten by the eighth century the fusion was complete another very interesting and important result of the lombard invasion was that the prolonged duel between barbarians and greeks prevented the development of any common form of government there might in time emerge an italian race but there could be no italian nation so long as towns and provinces were dominated by rulers whose policy and ambitions were utterly opposed the exarch of ravenna claimed in the name of the emperor at constantinople to collect taxes from and administer the whole peninsula but in practice he often ruled merely the strip of land around his city cut off from other greek officials by lombard dukes he would be able to communicate by sea with the important towns on or near the coast such as naples but so irregularly that the government would tend to grow every year more independent of his control in rome for instance there was not only the senate with its traditions of government but the pope who even more than the senate had become the protector and adviser of his fellow-citizens we have seen how leo the great persuaded attila the hun to withdraw when his armies threatened at the very gates of rome while later he went on a like though unavailing mission to genseric the vandal it was acts like this that won recognition for the papacy amongst other rulers and more than any of the popes before him gregory the great who ascended the chair of peter in a d five ninety built up the foundations of this authority a roman of position and wealth gregory had become in middle age a poor monk giving all his money to the poor and disciplining himself by fasting and penance he is remembered best in england today for the interest he showed in the fair-haired angles in the roman slave market they have angels faces they should be fellow heirs of the angels in heaven his comment he followed up by a petition that he might sail as a missionary to the northern island from which these slaves came and when instead he was sent on an embassy to constantinople he did not forget england in the years that passed but after he became pope chose saint augustine to go and convert the heathen king of kent in this way southern england was christianized and brought into touch with the life of western europe a great pope it has been said is always a missionary pope gregory had the true missionary's enthusiasm and his writings all of them theological bear the stamp of saint augustine of hippo's ardent spirit enforced with a faith absolutely assured and unbending besides being instrumental in converting england gregory during his pontificate saw the arian church in spain reconciled to the catholic while he succeeded in winning the lombard king to christianity and friendship it was little wonder that the people of rome who had been at war with these invaders for long years looked up to the peacemaker not only as their spiritual father but also as a temporal ruler had he not fed them when they were starving declaring that it was thus the church should use her wealth had he not raised soldiers to guard the walls and sent out envoys to plead the city's cause against her enemies 
there was no such practical help to be obtained from the exarchs of ravenna talk as they might about the glories of constantinople thus romans argued and gregory who knew the real weakness of constantinople was able to disregard the imperial viceroys when he chose a policy of independence followed by his successors since the lombard kingdom had split up into a number of duchies each with its own capital italy in the early middle ages tended to become a group of city-states each jealous of its neighbors and ambitious only for local interests this provincial influence was so strong that it has lasted into modern times an englishman or a frenchman will claim his country before thinking of the particular part from which he comes but it is more natural for an italian to say first i am roman or neapolitan or florentine as the case may be it is only by remembering this difference that italian history can be read aright End of chapter five